Would you please open a copy of the Bible and find your way to the book of James? The title of my sermon this Lord's Day is, is five words. And the five words are simply this, in a world of hurt. In a world of hurt. We're going to begin in the Gospel of James. In a world of hurt. This is a play on a common colloquialism that maybe you have heard over the course of your life. I, I know that in my case, my dad used to say this a lot when I was a kid, when I was misbehaving or I was being lazy. If he wanted me to do something, he would often say something along these lines. If you don't, insert, clean your room or whatever. If you don't clean your room, you're going to be in a world of hurt. And my dad would get my attention that way. He, 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 would, he would say it as well, not just when I was misbehaving, but in moments where he was trying to impart fatherly wisdom to me, to teach me about realities in life. You know, sit me down and, and pour out his, his heart to his son. And, you know, maybe, uh, there's a decision that you're facing that you're thinking about or whatever. And, and you know, pops would let me know, hey, if, if you do this or if you do that, in my experience, that's going to lead to a world of hurt. Be careful. Now, I, I'm, I'm taking this common colloquialism and using it as a bit of a play on words this morning to apply it literally to the hurt of our world. Truly, we are living in a world of hurt. R regardless of uh, decisions that, made that, are, that are bad, regardless of misbehaving, if you did everything right and you decided everything well, you're still going to experience hurt in this world. This is not a, a warning from a pastor to a congregation. You're going to be in a world of hurt. This is a description for us to wrap ourselves around this morning that our world is filled with hurt. It is packed with pain. It is loaded with loss. Now that said, I want to draw your attention to this image that I've placed in front of you here on the PowerPoint this morning. If you were an art major or an art lover, you, you, maybe you notice this is a copied picture of Van Gogh's famous painting. It's, it's known as the Red Vineyard. And among his paintings, this one is famous because it is the only painting that Vincent Van Gogh sold in his lifetime while he was alive. It's the only one that Vincent Van Gogh sold. Uh, today it rests in an exhibition in a museum in Moscow. You think of such a famous artist, and, you, and you, would, you, you would expect that he would have sold numbers, numbers of paintings before he died. Over the course of his, of his life, he produced uh, uh, some 1,100 drawings, some 900 paintings, but you know what? He was not famous in his life. He became famous after he died. In fact, Van Gogh in life suffered. He lived in a world of hurt. Now, we are here this morning not to have an art history lesson from a dead artist. We are here to experience the, the living word. And so I've asked for you to turn to the book of James. And I want to use this image by way of introduction as we're getting into the text of James to illustrate something for us. James is a first century document eyewitness of the historical Jesus of Nazareth. He, he writes to a congregation, particularly in the Jewish context, that were experiencing a number of socio-ethnic stresses and uh, things that were exasperated with regard to being a part of the early Jesus movement. And so, so he writes to kind of address these things. He, he writes with the style of Hebrew wisdom literature. So when you're reading James and, and say if you pick up James and read it in one sweep and then you go to the Hebrew Bible and you pick up the book of Proverbs, there's a, a certain similar kind of style and texture to it. It's, it's wisdom. 
Like my father having those moments when he was, hey, I need to tell you you're going to be in a world of hurt if you do this or that. It's a passing on of wisdom. Hopefully you have James open. Would you draw your eyes just to the beginning of it? Chapter 1, verse 1. James, a bondservant of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed, greetings. Verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. James says trials are coming. James says they are inevitable. Hardships are ahead. Draw your eyes. Let's survey some of the verses here. So, so try to move quick with your eyes here. Look at verse 9. You see him speaking there of the brother of humble circumstances. That's a way of describing someone who's going through a tough experience. Look at the next verse. It, 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 here, here we read of death that comes to all, both the rich and the poor. He describes it, I quote, like flowering grass. He will pass away. Look at verse 11 in the language of the sun. You see the language of sun and scorching winds and withering grass and things fading away. It's very much like this painting in front of us. I shared with you that in Van Gogh's uh, life, he, he suffered. In fact, in, in Van Gogh's, in the world that he lived in, 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 in the 1800s, in his culture, people worked very long days. The, the painting of the Red Vineyard actually captures this. You, you see the people in, in the fields and they're just working, working, working. It's a very long day. Notice where the sun is. The sun is, is, is setting. They are, they are working from morning into the evening. The sun is setting, the time when, when you get off of work, but not for those folks. This is an, an era of child labor. This is an era where, where you don't have labor laws and these sorts of things. There's no HR department. There's no one you can complain to. There's no, you know, Toby. You know, it's just a bunch of Michael Scott's ruining everything. It's just a, hor it's a horrible place to be a hand worker. It's a world of pain, a world of suffering, a world of exploitation. Van Gogh is, is ca capturing this. It's, it's, it's beautiful as a piece of art, but it's also capturing pain and the redness of it and the image of it. So Van Gogh himself, as I said, was no stranger to the world of hurt. He suffered in his adult life with poverty, with failure, with rejection. Uh, you can read about him. He proposed to women who turned him down, who said no. He was estranged from his family towards the end of his life. He was no stranger to malnutrition, overwork, insomnia, alcoholism plagued him. His mental health was quite poor. He was diagnosed with acute mania and generalized delirium. Van Gogh is popularly known for self-injury. Uh, one specific manic episode after he was rejected by, by a woman, he, he cut a piece of his ear off. He went, you know, Mike Tyson on himself. He just, he just chopped it off. There's a self-portrait of him all bandaged up with this, with this look of just hurt on him. And he paints that of himself. And that would be a painting that he would stare at and remind himself of this world of hurt. And, and in fact, speaking of self-injury, his death was likely from an infection related to a wound from shooting himself at the age of 37. The day after this, the day after, uh, after he shot himself, he's in his bed and he's suffering and his brother comes to him and his, his brother records his last words and I quote, the sadness will last forever. There's another translation, he, he was Dutch, there's another translation that we get of his final words that is this, pain is life. The sadness will last forever, pain is life. It is no wonder that many of his paintings are filled with these images of, 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 like this, of toil, of, of, of pain. 
of being overworked, of being exhausted, uh, of laboring into the night, and, and then you got to wake up and you got to do the same thing over and over. Pain is life. The image in front of you shows pain. It was painted shortly before he died, just a, a couple of years. And so this opening illustration with an image of pain and toil, this opening scripture from the book of James is serving to introduce today's message that I have for you as I want to talk about hurt in this world and I want to talk about the inevitable feeling of pain. I want to take you to see Jesus and see how Jesus meets our pain for his glory and his purposes. And I want to take you into sections of scripture that will speak inevitably ab about the reality of pain and biblical ways by which we can process this. So this leads us to the first point on the outline, inevitable pain. Uh, we will be surveying some text, so you've got to keep your fingers ready to turn in the scripture. I will be careful to exegete and exposit each text that we turn to within its own context and do justice to its genre and, and, and handle it rightly so that we may hear the Lord speak through his word to us. So James 1, keep it in front of you, look at it, multitask, listen and look. Scorching winds, hot sun, withering grass... We have the words of promise that you will encounter trials. It's not an if, it's a when. Trials are coming. It is inevitable. Living in a world of hurt means we will hurt. Things are broken. In verse 27, look at verse 27. We read of suffering widows and orphans. Along with physical hardship, there is decay. There is talk here from James's pen of, of mental issues. In verses 6 through 8, we read of those who are experiencing doubt in their minds and their hearts, and they're being tossed back to and fro just like the wind. There's, there's a mental tossing. We read in verse 13 of temptation, in verse 14 of lust, in verse 20 of anger, in verse 21 of filthiness and wickedness. Now turn from chapter 1 over to chapter 4. Notice that chapter 4 opens by talking about what? Conflicts, lust, pride. Look at the text as you listen. Conflicts. There's, there's pain. We read in verse 7 of chapter 4 of the devil. In verse 8 we read of uncleanliness and impurity. In verse 9 we read of misery, mourning, weeping, gloom. In the fifth chapter, you got, move to chapter 5, look at verses 14 and 15. We read of sickness and suffering. So, so chapter 4, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm showing you some things in the text that are, that, are, that are teaching us the inevitability of pain. James is reminding his readers that pain will come. And he's reminding his readers that the nature of life is that it is fleeting. Look at chapter 4, verse 13. Draw your eyes at the text. He, he says, come now. That's a, that's a literary device to get our attention. Come now. Listen to what I have to say. Come now. Chapter 4, verse 14. You do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. You've never seen that one on a coffee cup, right? You haven't seen that one, uh, you know, bumper sticker at the Christian bookstore or whatever. Remember bookstores? Uh, you know, like, you are just a vapor that appears for a little while and vanishes away. Wow, that's very inspirational. Thank you. Uh, now, 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 James isn't trying to be, you know, the, the Debbie Downer or whatever. He's chin-checking the proud. I, I said there were various socio-ethnic kind of conflict issues that are going on that he's addressing, and among them there are is issues of injustice with regard to the rich and the way they were exploiting the poor. 
kind of similar to this image here where you can think of poverty and poor workers and, and horrible work conditions. There were rich merchants of the day that thought that they were getting away with escaping death and suffering on the backs of the poor and the weak. And, and James challenges the sinful to see that life is not in their hands. Uh, uh, people with, uh, with a lot of stuff tend to live that way. They think life is in their hands. And, and James is challenging them to say, no, 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 your life belongs to the Lord. Verse 15, he says, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live. Your, your life belongs to the Lord. Your life is in the Lord's hands. And it is because of this reality that we can rest in Him, the Lord, and rest in Him when it hurts so bad and when the pain inevitably will come. Draw your eyes at verse 8 of chapter 4. This is one of, one of my favorite verses here in the text. He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Come to him. Press into him when pain comes. Draw near to him. He will draw near to you. Now, speaking of drawing near to God, I, I, I shared with you that I'm going to be taking you around some sections of, of, of Scripture this morning. And so, speaking of drawing near to God, the book of Psalms is a wonderful book inside of the, the Bible that it, it, it's about drawing near to God. So, would you move now from James and find your way into the book of Psalms? The book of Psalms is an ancient hymn book, the ancient Spotify list for the people of Israel. The book of Psalms are filled with passionate poems of God's people in pain, pouring out their hearts and wrestling to do what James just described, namely to draw near to God in a world of hurt. Last week, in my message, we spent time in the book of Psalms. Uh, we spent a lot of time in the book of Psalms. And, and, and pastorally, I took us into the book of Psalms last week because of the emotive nature of the book of Psalms. Because of the, the context of the book of Psalms, many of these are written in life or death circumstances. They are written in, in, in the face of great suffering and great loss. And, and we as a community, if you weren't here last week or if you, you've been out of town and you didn't hear the news, we suffered a horrible loss this past week, a, a death of a child in our congregation. And, and so as we gathered for Sunday on the heels of a week where we're mourning the loss of a baby, you say, what does the word of the Lord have to say to, to his people in a time such as this? And so we studied Psalm 61 in which the psalmist draws near to God uh, in, in the face of life and death circumstances. And in Psalm 61, there's great confidence in the text. God is proclaimed to be a refuge. Uh, I titled the, the message last week, Our Refuge. He, he, the related image of a rock is used. He's a rock, he's a refuge, he's a shelter. Psalm 62, the psalm written in that, in that backdrop, there's, there's real enemies that are coming to kill the psalmist, and the psalmist draws near to God as his stronghold who will protect him. And, and, and with, those verses, with, with those verses of him extolling God as the refuge, as, as the rock, as the, the shelter, there's verses there where he's directing praise to God, and then he turns and he directs praise from God to directly address his enemies. And he taunts them. He taunts them. My God is bigger than this. My God is over this. This world of hurt, it's got nothing on my God. And then he turns from taunting his enemies to get right back where he left off in total confidence and, and praise of God. 
this, this kind of response that you read inside of this book, like the 60, 61st chapter of, of in the face of death and all that, you can have that kind of confidence. We read that and we're challenged by that. And then I took us from chapter 61 over to Psalm 77. And, 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 and that opens quite the opposite, if you recall. The psalmist is in pain. He's in great pain. He's not taunting enemies. He's not speaking with confidence. He's in great pain. So by way of review, in case you missed last week, I, I want to kind of build on this pastorally. We're talking about the inevitability of pain to remind ourselves as a community that, that is, is, is in mourning for this precious family who lost a child. We're, we're, we're wrapping ourselves around this. And the scriptures, like we see in James, is saying, hey, look, this world is hard. It's filled with hurt. Uh, you know, check yourself draw near to God. And now we're transitioning to the Psalms, these inspired Psalms to help us process inevitable pain. And I'm reminding you of how some of these Psalms work. Some, like chapter 61, are yes, yes, in the face of death, death, you got nothing on me. You know, it's Corinthians 15, Apostle Paul just taunting death in his face. And in Psalm 77, well, you read, and, and, and the confidence isn't there. Psalm 77, let me put it in front of you in case you weren't here last week. This is good review, even if you were here last week. Look at how this is described. The psalmist is suffering. The psalmist has insomnia, deep internal toil. The, the, the text really reads like a panic attack. Look at, look at this. My voice rises to God. I, I cry aloud. Verse 2, in the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. In the night, my, my hand was stretched out. My soul refused to be comforted. When I remember, verse 3, God, ah, I'm disturbed. When I sigh, my spirit grows faint. Verse 4, you've held my eyelids open. I'm so troubled, I can't even speak. The psalmist can't sleep. Insomnia has exhausted him. Despair and depression are crushing him. His soul refuses to be comforted. He's having trouble sleeping. Perhaps this is a, a panic attack. It's tightening his chest. He's even having trouble breathing. He's having trouble speaking. He's having trouble thinking. His, his thoughts, they're going dark. He feels abandoned by God. Look at verse 7. Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never be favorable again? Has his loving kindness ceased forever? We talked last week about that word loving kindness, that Hebrew word chesed, and how significant that is but how his mind had gone dark that he was denying that very significant and precious word in Hebrew Scripture. God's no longer has said. Has God forgotten to be gracious? Verse 9, has, has he in anger withdrawn his compassion? Has the right hand of the Most High changed? Verse 10, the psalmist's mind is going dark. It's leading to heresy. He thinks God is changing. God is mutable. God has turned against him. God has forgotten him. Look at verse 3. The psalmist says he's disturbed when he thinks about God. I mean, that, that, that's the ultimate insult, right? If I, if, if, I said, if I said, I don't know, Julian's in the front row, so I'll pick on him. Julian, when I think of you, I just get disturbed, right? You say, that's a horrible thing to say to someone. What do you, what do you mean? You're talking, to, you're talking to God, and you're telling him that you're disturbed with him? You're, you're, you're telling him that he's, he's not there for you? you, you you're, you're, you're telling him things about him that aren't true of him? But here's the thing. He's still talking to God. He's still drawing near to God. Rather than denying those feelings, he's disclosing them. 
Rather than turning away from God in doubt and despair, he runs to God and he dumps it out. He pours it out. Here's what's going on. Here's here's what I'm dealing with. There's no filter. He's laying it out honestly before God. These really embarrassing thoughts. They're embarrassing. A great psalmist saying things like this of God. These, These dark feelings. I mean, come on, you know, be a man, shove it down, keep it to yourself, TMI, too much, you know, what are you doing? Having reflected on the inevitability of pain and processing as, as a congregation, I felt it important to take us to both Psalm 77 and both Psalm 61 so you can get the full range of the human experience in the face of hurt. There's ups and there's downs, and God's big enough for both. This is inspired scripture. This is inspired scripture, Psalm 77. It's raw, it's, I said, embarrassing, it's, it's dark, but he's, he's, pouring, he's, he's pouring it out. And so this morning, on your outline, you see Psalm 13. If you haven't found your way to the 13th chapter, find your way to Psalm 13. I want to show you another one that's raw. I want to give you some psalms to meditate on, because pain is inevitable, it's going to come, and you need to know where in the word to turn and to go when you're going dark, you know, here's some, here's some psalms that can help you. When you're feeling that confidence, here's some psalms for you. Psalm 13, verse 1. Look at the way this begins, and notice the, the, the repetition here. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul? Having sorrow in my heart all day, how long will my enemy be exalted over me? Notice the repetition of the refrain. How long? How long? How long? You're hiding your face from me, God. This is anthropomorphic language. God's not a physical being with a physical face. God is hiding his face from him anthropomorphically. It's poetry. It's poetic. The face is a symbol of presence, favor, blessing. All of those are gone. Well, at least the psalmist feels like they're gone. Now, there's there's a difference between reality and, and feelings. There's a difference between beliefs and reality. Reality is actually indifferent to our beliefs. Reality is stubborn that way. I can think all I want that I still have those luscious curls that I once had... And I can believe it sincerely, and they won't come back. I say to my son in the front row to enjoy it while you can, because maybe he's got got that that curse that my dad passed down to me. But I, I can think all I want that I have hair. I can think all I want that I weigh a certain weight. I can think all sorts of things about myself, about you, about God, about the world, about politics, about philosophy. Having beliefs, though, isn't the same as those beliefs corresponding to reality. And with regard to emotions, there are times, and they're actually quite frequent, can I get an amen, where your emotions aren't matching what's going on in reality. He's turned his face from me. No, he hasn't. Your emotions are all over the place. They have spiraled you down into despair. Day after day, really? Day after day, he hasn't been there for you? Nevertheless, it's okay to come with those emotions, right? God's not shutting him down and 
you know, logic chopping his emotions or whatever. He said, hey, pour them out. Keep pouring it out. Okay, how long, O oh Lord? Okay, keep it coming. How, how long, O oh Lord? How long? I'm, I'm out of words. I just want to know how long this is going to last. This really hurts. How long? Verse 3, consider and answer me, O oh Lord. Enlighten my eyes, or I'm going to sleep the sleep of death. And my enemy will say, I've overcome him. Yeah. And my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. The psalmist pleads to God, hey, God, I need you to hear me. He appeals to, to his life being on the line. These enemies want him for dead. They are mocking him. They are rejoicing over his, 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 his failing condition. How long, O oh Lord? How long? I feel abandoned. I feel alone. I feel like you're not there. This passage of sacred scripture, like, like what we saw last week when we were studying uh, Psalm 77, this is raw. R- right? If, 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 you didn't, if, if you didn't know any better, say you didn't know this was in the Bible, many people hearing this, in particular those who are in prosperity, health, wealth, name it and claim it circles, they, they would hear something like this and they would rebuke some, <laughs> a believer for saying this. Uh, don't, don't speak that. Don't claim that. Don't put those words out there. You can't talk to God like that. Those who are steeped in biographies and writings of, I don't know, heroic Puritans and, and church martyrs, you'd, you'd hear someone talking like that, and you might say, how dare you talk to God that way? Friends, this is the Bible. This is divine speech inspired by God to instruct the people of God about how to approach God. And this tells us that God wants us to know that he's a loving father who wants us to bring our raw emotions, irrational ideas, our bad theology, God's changing, God's forgetting his covenant, God's no longer has said, our bad theology, and come to him with it. Don't bottle it up. Listen, the Lord Jesus told us in Matthew 6, 8 that God knows what we need even before we ask. Psalm 139, verse 4 tells us that God knows what we're going to say even before we say it. So if that hurt is in there, don't bottle it up. God knows our hearts, our fears, our frustrations, our confusions, our, our, our criticisms, and more. And he uses that to work within us as we get those out, as we empty those out. He begins to pour it within, he begins to move, he begins to work, he begins to clean, he, get, he begins to bring clarity to our confusion. In Psalm 77, we see the psalmist pouring it out, and then in Psalm 77, I just give you the snippet of the bad stuff, but then he, he turns, he shifts. He moves from mourning to, to, to praise, he moves from despair to doxology, he moves from confusion to confidence, from feeling alone to knowing that God is with him and his people. And so too, Psalm 13, let me show you, it does the same thing. Look where we left off, verse 5. Look at the conjunction. What does verse 5 start with? But, but I have trusted your loving kindness. That's that same word, chesed, that we saw earlier in the other psalm. But I have trusted your chesed, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. But I, va'ani in the Hebrew, but I, but, in Schoolhouse Rock, children sing, conjunction, junction, what's your function? And in our language, a but is a conjunction that is used to introduce a clause that is contrasting with something that's already been said. And, and in this case, despair and doubt were said, but now va'ani, but, but, 
his depression starts to turn to God and confidence starts to come and bad thinking starts to get filled with good theology and now he's talking about chesed and he's, and he's talking about salvation. I shared with you last week that terms of salvation, often as moderns we read salvation and we think purely about the soul or the spirit or whatever, but in these contexts, it's, it's both social and physical and spiritual and soul and all that. He, God's going to save him from this circumstance that he's in, and, and, and he relies on God to save him in terms of his soul. His, 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 his rejection, those feelings of rejection, turn now into rejoicing. His confusion and pouting turn to confidence and praise. Look at verse 6. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Sorrow turned to song. The faithless man is filled with faith. And in verse 5, we read of that faith or that, that trust. I have trusted. That's what faith means. It's, it's to trust. And, and he specifically denotes his trust in the loving kindness of, of, of God. That, that word has said. Let me remind you of the significance of this word, and I'll quote one of my favorite Hebrew scholars, Dr. Bruce Waltke. He writes this, that hesed is one of these beautiful grand attributes of God. It describes two people who have a relationship. One person in the relationship is in desperate need and cannot help himself or herself, and the other person who can, who has it straight and out of kindness, love, and loyalty delivers that person. You see this attribute displayed, for example, when Joseph is dying and he says to his brothers, in our beginning scripture this morning, we read from Genesis and Joseph, he says to his brothers, I can't bury myself, but I want to be buried with my fathers. That's the word chesed. This is the chesed you will show me, that when I am dead, totally helpless, I want you to carry my bones and bury them in the promised land. And so Dr. Waltke writes, really, chesed, listen, is when a person can't help themselves. And the other person who can deliver, out of love and loyalty, delivers. Now, said perfectly captures for us what God has done in Christ. We who are helpless in our sins, worse than helpless, we were dead in our sins, on the ground. One has come and has scooped us up and breathed life into our dead souls, our dead spirits. And he's come to give us chesed and salvation. Now, speaking of Christ, I want to take you from these in, in inspired psalms to talk to you about the incarnate person. Uh, the book of Psalms anticipate his coming. And so now let's turn to the books of the Gospels that document his coming, his arrival. Would you please turn from Psalms and find your way to the Gospel of John and find your way to chapter 11. So we've covered inevitable pain, we've covered inspired psalms, we now move to the incarnate person. The Gospel of John, uh, like James, is written uh, from one who's a part of the eyewitness community in the first century. He's writing this, the Gospel accounts serve as narratives of the historical Jesus. John's uh, particular account is, uh, isn't a mere narrative or a biography, it's a theological biography. He includes these historical accounts and he laces them with rich theology, allusions to Hebrew scripture, to teach his readers about the meaning of the great events that took place in the life of the historical Jesus. Now, the ultimate event, of course, in the life of the historical Jesus is his death and resurrection. And so, so John doesn't just write about the death and the resurrection. He actually laces it with theology so that you understand what it means. 
The Gospel of John begins with God and the Creator. He parallels the very opening of the Hebrew Bible, in the beginning God. John tells you out of the gate who the historical Jesus of Nazareth was. He's more than a mere man of history. He's God of eternity. Oh, and let's get specific. John wants you to know who the God of eternity is. This isn't any old generic God, but the, 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 the God of this community is one who eternally dwells as Father, Son, and Spirit. And John wants us to understand that this one God in three persons has come in the historical Jesus, the Son specifically, the eternal Son, who's one with the Father and Spirit. The eternal Son, that person, has taken on a human nature and become a man. Now, why would God do something like that? Well, because God's the creator, and he created humanity, and he loves humanity, and he made humanity in his image. It is a story of unrequited love, the story of creation and the history of it. Humanity rebels against the giver of life. And as a result, the punishment that fits the crime of rebelling against the giver of life is the taking back of life. The creator not only gave life, but he gave harmony to the creation. He has a will and a way and a law and a, a way for humanity for things to operate. And so in rebelling against the one who has given that order, there's now disorder. Hurt has come. Things don't work right. Things are broken. This is a world of hurt. But God, right? But God. But let me tell you what he has done for us. The Father sent the Son. He became a man. And he lives the life that we did not live. Why does he do that? Because we owed a debt that we could not pay. And so he comes to pay the debt for us. If you went out to the restaurant with your friend or whatever and you left your wallet and you had no means and your friend said, hey, let me pay that for you, right? They're offering to pay for you. That's exactly what he has done. He says, you guys have a debt, you guys have a bill, I'm going to pay it for you. And through his innocent human life, he is able to make a payment for guilty human life, like you and I. And so he makes that payment. He dies in our place. The car was coming for you, he pushed you out of the way, and the car hit him. The end of the story, though, isn't the corpse of Christ on a street in Galilee. The end of the story is that he rises up from the dead. He conquers death. And therefore, the transaction is complete. John writes his gospel so that we know who the historical Jesus is. We, 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 we know that this, this grand event of his death and resurrection, what that means and that invitation that's offered in that. And then wrapped around that great event are all these other events that he laces with theology for us to understand. And the event that I want to take you to this morning is an event that John records, which is a painful experience, driving home, inevitable pain, and it is the account of Lazarus. Lazarus was a friend of Jesus, his two sisters, close friends of Jesus. John chapter 11, we're going to look at a famous passage where one of Jesus' close friends dies. And where his other close friends, these, these precious women, are experiencing great loss. The passage includes the shortest version in the English Bible. Incidentally, it's not the shortest version if you're reading the original languages, but it is the shortest version in the English Bible. Jesus wept. Draw your eyes to the text. John chapter 11, uh, uh, verse 1. Now there was a certain man, he was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, from the village of, of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who, who anointed the Lord Jesus with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. And so the sister sent word to him, Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. 
Bethany, uh, uh, geographically, is about, it, it's about two miles away. So let me put a map here in front of you so you could kind of see that. And, you know, it'd be like, I don't know, walking to Trader Joe's or whatever. Uh, you, you know, it's just two miles that way or whatever. So, so their brother is sick. Uh, he, he's a bit, he's, he's a ways away. There's not cell phones or whatever to, you know, like shoot him a text or whatever. According to verse 5, Jesus, he loves him. He's, he's very close to him. He would want to know about this. He's God in the flesh, and so he kind of knows all things, and that's going to be a point I want to drive home, that John drives home. So the followers of Jesus, they've been following him for some time. They're aware of his teachings. They're aware of his power at this point in the narrative. And so they run to him in their, in their, in their hour of pain. They run to him for help. Look at, look at verse 4 in the text. When Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was? What? I thought, I thought you loved him. Don't you care? They're crying. They're in desperation. Why don't you... It's just two miles. I could run down to Trader Joe's. That's not that big of a deal. Why don't you, why don't you head over there, Jesus? Okay, we're going to skip ahead for sake of time, but the verses are clear that Jesus doesn't go immediately, and he has a reason for it. He's not lollygagging. He waits intentionally. For sake of time, we're going to skip. I'll come back to it. Uh, go ahead to verse 17. Jesus eventually gets back to Bethany. When he gets there, we see Lazarus ain't sick anymore. He's dead. Verse 17. When Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. I already told you that, so you have that in mind, but John wants you to know that. He's driving that home. In case you don't know the geography, it wasn't, it wasn't that far. He could have got down there. And many of, of the Jewish community had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha stayed, therefore. Martha, therefore, she, she excuse me, heard that Jesus was coming, and so she goes to meet with him, and, and Mary stayed at the house, and Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother, not have died. It reads like the Psalms. It's a bit raw. Do you know who you're talking to? You're talking to Jesus. That's God in the flesh. He's, he's come to die for you. you. You should be indebted to him. Do you know who you're talking to? Well, you, you, the audacity. You're, you're, you're blaming this on Jesus. Where were you? This, this is a common human emotion, isn't it? You've been sucker punched by pain. You felt the darkness come over you. This is a very natural reaction in a world of hurt that we respond with this. Where are you, God? How long, O Lord? Psalm 13. I, I don't know about you. I've prayed for people who were sick and they died. I've prayed for people who were, who, who, who were dead to rise up and didn't happen. I, I, I've been in these moments where the inevitability of pain has hit and you find yourself in the language of these inspired psalms coming before the incarnate person, the Lord. And, and, and just like our sister in faith here, you, you find yourself in pain going, why weren't you here? To help our imagination in picturing things, I, I've, we've got this image of Van Gogh still in the background of our PowerPoint, a bit faded so you can see the sermon points. But uh, there's another picture that comes to mind with regard to Van Gogh. And it's this scene. Van Gogh actually painted this scene. This is the Dutch Impressionist's version of this scene. It is based off of a, a, a print by Rembrandt. Rembrandt painted this scene. 
However, there's something significant when you look at Rembrandt's painting of this scene that, 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 that Van Gogh was using when he painted it. You see, in Rembrandt's painting, Jesus is in the, the middle to, of it, off to the side with his hand raised, and he's, he's boom, in Rembrandt. Jesus is there. But in Van Gogh, Jesus isn't there. And I think it captures this moment where we've paused in the text. Draw your eyes back at the text, verse 22. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give it to you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said, I know he's going to rise again. Of course, in the resurrection in the last day. Jewish community, Jewish texts have, have a, 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 a eschatological hope of this Messiah figure coming and raising the dead in the last day. Uh, incidentally, those texts apply to Jesus in his return, his second advent. Those texts also speak of the Messiah coming first to suffer as a servant. And so those two hadn't been totally put together, and so she's missing the point. Yeah, duh, Jesus, that's going to happen when Messiah comes. Again, you're like, who are you talking to? You're talking to the Messiah. But again, God, you know, it, it's in Scripture. Like, hey, pour it out. Just pour it out. Pour it out, girl. Pour it out. Get it, get it out. Jesus said to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. Okay, so, so, so Martha's growing in her understanding of, of those ancient hopes and the Messiah figure. She's a genuine believer. She's in a process of sanctification. She's growing. She believes he's the Christ. He's the Son of God. He's, he, he, he's the giver of everlasting life, even beyond the grave. The one who gives us the, the hope of heaven, the one who handles hell. She believes it. Even though she's a believer, she's still in pain. And I, I emphasize this because I think that a lot of people think that if you're a good Christian, when pain strikes you, it, it's not going to impact you. If you're a really good believer, when it gets hit, you'll just, no tears, and you're going to be fine. Nothing could be further from the truth. Martha's a woman of faith, but she is a woman in great pain. She has lost her brother. Let me tell you something, it hurts to lose a brother. I've had the unfortunate experience of it myself. And it isn't the sort of thing that you get over. Decades have passed since that tragedy happened in my own life. And I can still close my eyes. I can still see the empty room, the empty bed. I can still see the coffin that I probably shouldn't have looked into given the nature of, of how his life was taken. I, I still feel the agony of that. My, my stepmother still cries out to God about that. These are heavy and real things, but we worship an awesome chesed God who says, pour it out to me. When she said this, verse 28, she went away. She called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher's here, he's calling you. And when she heard of it, she got up quickly and she was coming to him. So the ladies are talking to each other. They refer to Jesus as the rabbi, the teacher. Uh, they were a teach he was a teacher in the eyes of the followers. It's, it's significant for this, a bit of a sidebar, but you need to understand something about how radical this verse is in its context in the first century. The, the, the fact that you have women in that culture uh, uh, referring to him as their rabbi in that culture that, that, that's unheard of. You see, in that culture, rabbis refused to instruct women. Jesus took a radically different approach. He welcomed women as disciples. He opened the doors of discipleship to outsiders. He met with myth, misfits and the marginalized. He called the castaways, and they came. And in this case, Jesus, too, calls, and the ladies come. Look at verse 32. When Mary came... Where Jesus was, she saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you would have been there, my brother would not have died. 
That's despair. It just keeps, it keeps you stuck on that same idea and it keeps playing over. How long, O oh Lord? How long, O oh Lord? How long, O oh Lord? And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jewish community there who had, who had come, they also were in weeping. He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled and he said, where, where, where have you laid him? And they said, oh Lord, come, come, come see. Verse 35, Jesus wept. And the Jewish people were saying, see how he loved him. It's an emotional narrative. Uh, the emotions are raw. There's little need for commentary here. There's a good man who dies, and there's people who are sad. And, and he's got his sisters there. And you see his sisters, and they're, they're crying, and your heart goes out to them. And here's Jesus, and he's a friend of, of these sisters. They're his disciples, and, 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 that, and that's radical. And you know what else is radical? He's weeping. Another sidebar, culturally at the time, that, that was also not the, the thing to do. You see, the Greco-Roman philosophers of the day emphasized sobriety, uh, stoicism, remaining calm, even in bereavement. You, you don't do that. But not Jesus. He's countercultural. As the passage moves, Jesus performs a miracle. He raises Lazarus from the dead, a spoiler alert, showing that he has power to heal the sick and he has power to raise the dead. Remember what he said in verse 4. When Jesus heard this, what did he say? This sickness is not to end in death. He has power over the grave. Now, again, John records these events because he's theologizing and he's, he's teaching us things about Jesus. This raising of the dead is foreshadowing his, his raising of himself unto death and imperishable resurrection. Uh, feeling helpless, in pain, is a part of this narrative. You can feel the helplessness of the scene. Uh, when, when you hear of loss like we had in our community, you, you, you don't have words. You feel helpless, and feeling helpless is a very scary thing. And in the midst of pain, helplessness, and fear, we, we begin to ask the questions they're asking. You know, God, where were you? In the case of Mary and Martha, they, they, they could run to him. They could literally run to him. He's two miles away. They can run to him, and, and he's come. Now they can run to him. In our case, Jesus has ascended to heaven, so I can't run down to Trader Joe and find him. Now, in the one sense, this is a horrible thing. In another sense, it's a glorious thing. You see, for those who are craving the intimacy of touch, it can feel horrible, it can feel bad. But in reality, this is the wonder of it, we know that Christ, as the second person of the triune God, is omnipresent, and so he's not limited to one space, one place. Uh, albeit spatially located in his risen body, he is with his people, as he told us in the Great Commission. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so we can come to him. We can run to him. He's closer than Trader Joe's. He's here. He's here. And in this world of hurt, we need to hear that he is here. The next point, we move from the sisters to the suffering, from Bethany to Del Rey, uh, we're processing a, a loss as a community. If you're new here, heavy losses kind of hit us uh, this year. In fact, we've lost a handful of loved people. I, I think this isn't just a thing for our congregation, but uh, I, I mean, in, in other networks and webs, there's, the last few years, people have suffered a lot of losses. Not just disease and death, but there's been other things. I mean, I, mental overload, relational divides, marital betrayals, cheating spouses. Those can feel as bad as, as having someone die. In fact, I, I mean, I would rather have cancer than have my spouse cheat on me, right? I, I would just, just give me cancer. I, I, I don't want to go through that. I don't, I don't want to feel that kind of mental relational pain. I don't want to go through that. I don't, my kids walking away from church, I don't want to feel that. 
Uh, brain cancer, let's go. I'll sign up for brain cancer. Give me disease, but keep my children in, in your body. Keep, keep my, my wife faithful. Keep, keep my friends faithful. Those, those pains are real. Pain is multidimensional. And as a pastor, as a church, we're called to a ministry of discipleship. And so when I come before God's people on Sunday, I'm, I'm seeking to prepare you for the day that is inevitable. I'm seeking to prepare you for, for pain. I think of the great Christian philosopher C.S. Lewis who wrote about pain. Two books, if you haven't read them, pick them up, put them on your nightstand, A Grief Observed and The Problem of Pain. He writes about an experience. He's a great thinker, an, an Oxford scholar. But rationality and emotion, you know, sometimes those emotions, they don't correspond to reality. His emotions overwhelmed his reason. He was watching his wife die of bone cancer. He's wrestling with God, and he writes these words, You never know how much you really believe anything until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you. The truth of God's existence is often denied, doubted in the face of pain, especially the kinds of pains that are often associated with uh, those that were caused by acts that are free-willed and humans. Uh, the, the acts of the Holocaust or slavery in America or, or even natural disasters. We say, where is God when that hurricane hit, when, when that wicked man you know, shot those people? Where is God? And so a lot of times in these times, we, we, we are also moved around the so-called problem of evil. Now, the problem of evil, it, it's really not a problem uh, intellectually when it comes down to it. You see, because uh, invoking the category of evil to argue against the existence of God actually doesn't work because you have to presume the existence of God to have an objective category of evil, but you're trying to argue that God doesn't exist by using a category that you can't get unless God does exist. Follow me if I lost you. If, if, if morality is relative, and it's just, well, you know, to each his own, and you think that's wrong, but I think that's right, and some cultures, they eat their neighbors, and some cultures, they love their neighbors, whatever. You know, who are we to judge? Then you can't have an objective criterion of evil that is cross-cultural that everyone stands under. You have to have a lawgiver to have a law. You, 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 you have to have that. So if you want to shake your fist at God and say, you don't exist because of evil, you can't even get started with that objection. It's contradictory. It's like saying, I can't speak a word of English. You just did. But alas, in our emotions, we speak words, and we say things, and we feel things that are illogical. We make problems that aren't really problems because we're wrestling with something that's emotional. It gets bottled up, and it, it, it spirals in on us, and emotions have their way. It has been said that emotions make horrible masters but wonderful servants. When our emotions are serving the truth of God's word, when they're firing right, oh, they're wonderful things. The emotions of, of, of holding a, a loved one, the emotions of, of going through an experience and, and being together or whatever, but they're horrible when they've become your masters. Martha comes to Jesus in verse 21, and you see her emotions have mastered her. If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And it's clear from the following verses, this is not a statement of faith, it's a statement of fear. It's a statement coming from pain. She's wrestling with the problem of pain. It's not a so-called theoretical, philosophical problem or anything like that, because in it you see her saying, I believe you are the one, but I still hurt. Jesus doesn't reprimand her. He cries with her. And perhaps some of you are wondering, like Martha, when pain hits, these very things. And so we move then from the sisters, the suffering, the so-called, to D on your outline, the sorting. How do we deal with pain? Pain can be broken down in various ways. I'm a pastor. I care about the congregation. So 
I wanted to give you some things to make sure that we have basic categories as we're going into the week and we're processing things as a community. And the main thing that I want you to see is that dealing with pain is hard, but the best place to go to with your pain is Jesus, because he is God and man, as I've said. And so as man, he fully relates to us. He's gone through the trials that we've gone through. He's been rejected. He's, he's, he's faced sickness and disease and darkness and all of it. And so you can come to him and you can pour that out and know that you have a sympathetic human who hears you. On the other hand, you can come to him and know that you're not just talking to a man. You're talking to God. You're talking to the one who provides forgiveness for you, the chesed one, the one that you can trust, the one who will heal you, the one who will make you whole, the one that all of you listening to me, all who hear this, you can come to and have all of your sins pardoned and forgiven and made whole with. Because God didn't send a third party to clean up our mess. He came himself in that man. And because of who he is, he has the, the prerogative as God to, to forgive. And because of who he is as God, he has the power to handle it. And be, because he is a man, he has the passion to understand. Now, I, I have here uh, on the subpoint a cross-reference to the book of Genesis. Don't turn there. Just keep open to John. But the book of Genesis tells that story that I shared of the unrequited love of creation to creator. And it, it, it explains for us why Jesus is is this holy one who dies in our place, and it helps us make sense out of it. And then as we see him in these narratives and we encounter him in our worship and our prayer as we run to him, we, we see a lesson that's really important for us that is not necessarily ungodly to wrestle with pain in these raw ways because Jesus himself weeps in pain. Jesus himself, as we saw in our study last week, invokes uh, Psalm 22, right? And he, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's, there's a rawness to this. There's a texture to this. And I, I want us to see that, that it's, it, it's okay. In fact, your prayer closet, your prayer life should have this in it. I think a lot of times people feel like, I don't, I don't know how to pray or whatever, because they're, 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 you're thinking too much about what you're going to say before you say it. Just pour it out. Cry. Mourn. Say crazy stuff. You're, you're not saying it to be blasphemous. You're getting it out. He's forgiven. He's forgiven you. Anything sinful you say, he's atoned for that. You understand that. You might say, but Pastor Matt, I, I don't know. I'm a little worried with what you're trying to encourage me to do because I don't just have sadness. I'm angry. Well, guess what? Jesus was angry too. Look at John. I asked you to say there, 11, verse 33. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Now, 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 this word deeply moved in the Greek, anebre me, sato, it's a word that literally we can render to be very angry. Um, he's angry about this. I, I, I think this uh, moved in spirit troubled is, is, is mm, no, he's angry about this. There, 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 th this term is used for fierce anger and indignation. Jesus is crying and he's angry. Okay, he said, well, what, what, what's he angry at? Well, it doesn't seem he's directing it towards Mary and Martha. I think he's, he's angry at the reality of this world of hurt. This, this prince of the air, this devil, this murderer from the beginning, this, this sin and this fall and, and all of this. You have moments where you go, I just want this to be over with. But alas, it is a part of the world that we live in. 
So we need to understand that we can come to God with this, that God in the flesh himself models this. We need to understand that it's a part of the world that we live in so that we're not trying to be escapists or whatever. We, we need to understand in our own context, it's not just a part of the world that we live in, but for us, particularly in a place like Los Angeles, it's complicated by urbanization and technology. With technology, we do everything we can to fight death. I'm not saying medicine is bad. I'm all about that medicine. Um, I'm propped up by Advil and caffeine this morning, but uh, you know, medicine's great. Love, love medicine. Not against medicine. Not saying it's bad, but we prolong the inevitable. We prolong the inevitable. We will prop ourselves up with machines, and, and instead of realizing the inevitable that has come, we'll we'll use our technology to distract us from from death itself. We self-medicate through our, our, our media. Our urbanized world, it, it, it complicates this. In our urbanized world, we're removed from the cycle of pain and death. We, don't, we don't, really don't see it. I go to the store and I buy a shrink-wrapped chicken. I, I don't even have to go to the store. I just Instacart, uh, you know, Costco rotisserie chicken. I don't ever have to think about this animal that gave its life for me. I don't ever have to see any of this. I don't, I don't ever have to, to, to go through the process of holding a struggling animal and taking its life. I'm so removed from it. I don't, I don't see dead things. I'm, I'm removed from them. And so it's, it's natural for us, in particular in our setting, because we're removed from it. And so, so th that's just a reality that we face. We're removed from it, and guess what? We also do our best to remove ourselves from it. When someone dies, what do we do? We remove the body. We have professionals who can paint the body and make it look alive. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. Please, make me look pretty. Put a wig on when I die. Knock yourselves out. You know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not attacking uh, you know, this, this field of work. I'm just saying that in our culture, we distance ourselves. We have a problem with this processing because we're so removed. We put a body in an expensive, luxurious box, and then we close the box. Speaking of closing things, our mourning and processing death is also complicated by how our culture is in isolation and individualism. Our culture is more and more lonely. We're more connected, but more isolated. I was reading an article on this uh, 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 recently. In fact, this week, a sociologist, Philip Slater, wrote a book, The Pursuit of Loneliness, that gets into the root of the disconnection in America and the collective obsession with success of the individual. We're brought up in a culture that tells us uh, th that the more money we make, the more things that we accumulate, the better title and the fancier job we have, the happier we will be. But this inevitably pulls us away from being with other people. And then technology comes in with this. And so, like I said a moment ago, I don't even have to go to the store. I can just order it and it, and it shows up at my house. I, I mean, Amazon is in its prime, but we are not. I, 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 earlier, I made a comment in passing that bookstores are gone. You used to go to the store, and it, it's a communal experience. You see people looking at things. You talk to people. You go to buy some clothes. You end up talking to people. You try on the clothes. I don't have to try on clothes. I, I, I can just order on Amazon that shirt. And I say to myself, I'm not sure what size I am. Weight's been kind of fluctuating. I'll get the medium, the large, and the extra large, and I'll send the other two back. Think of, think of what that's doing to our world. Think, think of all the waste that goes into that. I could just take myself down to the store, and, but I'm gonna, I'm, they're going to ship it to me, and I'm going to ship it back. 
We have the phenomenon of suburban sprawl, where city dwellers are, are fleeing the urban centers. And so we trade our tight communities where we used to be together to have spaces of empty voids that we seek to fill with food, shopping, television, stuff. Commutes are longer. People spend more time in their car. And so we're drained of our energy and our inclination to participate in social and community groups, especially if, if the preacher is talking about sad stuff, right? And so churches have really been, become disengaged in the last few years, and that exasperates our ability to process pain because we were made to be social creatures. We're made in the image of a God who's three in one. In the creation account, it's not good for us to be alone. And so, so we're experiencing this, and the charge for you is go to community group. Keep coming. Keep sharing. Keep growing. Keep, keep on mission. A, fi a final point of pastoral application here is that not all pain is the same. There are different kinds of pains and different causes of pains. So, so, so broadly speaking, there are pains that are forced upon us as a result of, of living in, in this world of hurt, but then these are the ones that we don't like to talk about. There are pains that we bring upon ourselves as a part of being sinful and making sinful decisions. So the pain experienced by a mother whose child is murdered in a gang crossfire is one thing. The pain of a man experiencing uh, uh, stress because he's been trying to juggle a mistress and a wife is another thing. The adulterous man has created his agony he has, he, has, he has made his bed, but the mourning mother had no hand in the incident. Now let me say this. Both need Jesus. The adulterous man needs to repent, and the mourning woman needs to come and rest, and vent her tears in her pain. And that said, in a room of any size, there are people who need to hear, repent, turn from sin. You're playing with fire. The whole house is going to burn down. I'll do it tomorrow. Don't postpone. Come. Come to him. And there are others who need to hear rest. You, you, you've been fretting. You've been carrying it on your own back. You've, you've had these thoughts. You want to say, how long, O oh Lord? But you, I can't talk to him like that. Rest in him. Pour it out to him. Let us, church, come in repentance and faith in this world of, of, of hurt. And we carry this message to, to both the proud, to call them to repentance, and to the humble and broken, to call them rest. I'm going to uh, close with uh, this, this final point on your outline. We've talked through inevitable pain, inspired psalms, the incarnate person. We're going to close by talking about implications practiced. Um, but as I was moving through the sermon and thinking about images of, of, of pain, and I put some Van Goghs in front of you, I was reminded of, an, of another Van Gogh image that I want to put in front of you. And this image will set up the conclusion. You've seen this one? Have you seen this one? This is known as the starry night over the Rhone. The starry night over the Rhone. And as, we, as I'm concluding the message, I, I, I have points of conclusion, but I want to charge us as a church to go on mission, to, to go into the world, to share this good news of Christ, to be bold and call people to repentance, and, and to be compassionate and call people to his rest. I, I want to call us as a church to this. And so, so this image, it comes to mind, it's actually a painting that I, I have in my house and I, I stare at quite a bit. The Starry Night over Rome. Now he painted this, Van Gogh did, when he was living in a coastal city in the south of France. The painting itself, it, it, it's about a one to two minute walk from where he was living at the time. 
It was done over a few uh, 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 months just before his life spiraled out of control. I shared with you the self-mutilation, and so it's, it's just before things went, go really dark. Now, speaking of darkness, in the image in front of us, notice, notice what's in the dark. You have a couple here, and you have this dark. You can't see it too well because of PowerPoint and light and what have you. But this is a church right here. And it's in the dark. It's in the dark. That's why I have this print, because it, it's, a so, it, it's a sobering one. The church is in the dark. Now, Van Gogh, his dad was a pastor. He was a pastor in the Dutch Reformed Church. His dad's dad, his grandfather, was a theology graduate from the University of Leiden in 1811. He was a pastor as well. Young Vincent wanted to follow in their footsteps. Vincent Van Gogh wanted to be a pastor. He applied to, to seminary, and he didn't pass his entrance exam, and so he couldn't go. He was still determined to go, though, and to serve Christ, and so he became a missionary to coal miners in Belgium, and he lived in poverty doing so. He suffered breakdown, he had to leave the mission field, and thereafter he took up art, thinking that he could serve God and minister to people through it. So he paints biblical scenes. We saw one of them today, powerful biblical scenes. He, he painted churches in the course of his life. But here, as he has found himself in the darkness, and things have gone really dark, when he paints the church, he puts the church in the dark. Shortly after painting this, he cuts his ear, as I shared with you. He's admitted to a hospital. He's discharged a few days later. He admits himself into an asylum, an insane asylum. The mental asylum was a Christian monastery. They had nuns doing nurse work. It, it was a place that Christians sent their loved ones. He was there 53 weeks. He suffered there. He had, he had breakdowns there. He tried to commit suicide by, by drinking oil from the, the lighted lamps and even drinking his paints. He went dark and spiraled and spiraled. But the light came back. I shared with you guys last week the saying, never doubt in the darkness what God reveals in the light. And the light came back. In, in, in the medical note, when he left the facility, they actually used the word cured of him. Now, of course, uh, you know, uh, his life spirals again. But while he's there for 53 weeks, he paints. And from his insane asylum room, looking out the window, he painted this. A lot of people confuse these two. They're two different paintings. And notice in this painting, the church, the church is in the light. It's, this is described as one of the most recognizable paintings in Western art. Um, it, it's, it's absolutely incredible. Now, I, I share these images because these images are driving something in the text, like the labor and the toil of the opening image. We saw that language in James. The image of the church being in the light. Hopefully, you still have John open, like I asked you. John 11, verse 7. Let us go to Judea. His people are called to go. Look at verse 8. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, uh, the, the Jewish people were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going to go there? And Jesus answered, verse 9 of John 11, Are there not twelve hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. The light motif is popular in John to drive home the light that we carry from the light he has given to us. The light motif is common in Jesus' teachings in other Gospels, most popularly in Matthew chapter 5. Look at this. Jesus said, Matthew 5, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. 
Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but you put it on a lampstand so that everyone can see this thing. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The church is called to be a light. The implications of what we studied this morning, church, is that we go and, 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 and we are that light. That we are a people who trust in his providence. He's our savior and, and we trust that he's in full control. John 11, hopefully it's still in front of you, right? right? This he said, 11, 11, this he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go that I may awaken him out of sleep. And the disciples said, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he's going to recover. He was using sleep as a euphemism for death, and they didn't pick up on it. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death. They thought he was speaking of literal sleep. And Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, you guys. And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. I showed you earlier that he didn't immediately go. It wasn't that far. Why didn't you immediately go? The text told us he waited four days. And here's the thing about the culture at the time. Jewish sources at that time believed that when a person died, their soul hovered over the body for three days. We have writings of rabbis around the time of Jesus who, who talk about this, that the soul would stay with the body when it died to ensure that the person was really dead. And so it, it, it seems here, based on what we know from the culture, that Jesus goes, I'm going to wait four days so that everybody knows He's dead, dead. So when I rise him up from the dead, can't nobody say, well, his soul was just kicking it by the body. Nope. I'm waiting four days. Because you know what? I'm, I'm in control of this. And I'm doing something. So when the ladies, when the disciples are like, hey, what are you doing? What are you doing? How long, oh Lord? He's doing something. And you need to trust that. Uh, further, when you don't trust that and you're wrestling, the second point, we need to process our suffering with him. Uh, don't hide it in, don't, don't try to filter it, just, just dump it out. Trials are coming, they are inevitable. We need to learn how to pray like the psalmist. We need to learn how to be like our sisters in the faith here and, and just come to Jesus with that. That's a part of your processing. He's a real person. Talk to him as one and, and just pour it out. Uh, see on your outline, uh, passing and salvation. Uh, passing and salvation is so important. You see, in, 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 in times of anxiety, we forget that this is going to pass. A key thing for us in suffering is to remember, this too will pass. James chapter 1, we, we move through it really quickly, but James talks about endurance that comes in these times of trial. And that endurance comes as we hold on to him and we know this is going to pass because he's in control. Uh, you have cross-references here in front of you on the PowerPoint, Revelation 21, 14, and, and 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Th these are verses that describe to us how this is going to pass, how Jesus is going to come back. This pain is not going to last forever. In Revelation 21, 14, it talks about him wiping all of our tears. And in 1 Corinthians 15, it talks about him coming back and raising the dead and restoring the creation. The unrequited love of the creation will be brought back into right relationship with her creator and all things will be made new. Van Gogh was wrong on his deathbed when he said this sadness will last forever. 1 Corinthians 15 begs to differ, Van Gogh. Revelation 21 begs to differ, Van Gogh. Lazarus begs to differ, Van Gogh. Jesus begs to differ, Van Gogh. Move from passing and salvation to the final point on your outline, the problem solved. Jesus will finally settle the problem of evil and pain in one sweep, in one sweep. The prophecies of the New Testament 
uh, uh, the prophecies of the Old Testament all fulfilled in the return of the Messiah in one sweep. In one sweep. The scriptures describe it as, as happening in, in the twinkle of an eye. In a moment, he comes back. Remember what Martha said in John eleven twenty four. I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. The last day is coming. And so I ask you the question, are you ready? You know, I talked about Van Gogh as an illustration quite a bit. I gave you some images and shared with you about his Christian upbringing and, and his faith and shared with you also those dark and kind of raw moments in his life of self-injury and, and perhaps even suicide at the end of his life. And, you know, a lot of people, they'll, they'll ask these questions like, do you think he was saved, you know? Do you think he's with the Lord or whatever? And a lot of people will ask questions about dead people in the afterlife, but what I'm concerned about this morning are the people who are alive in this life. And so let me ask you, do you know him? Have you turned to him? Have you had your sins forgiven? Have you been reconciled with him? All you have to do is cry out to him for forgiveness and believe in his said, his grace that will cover you. A final verse before we come to the communion table. We come to communion after we hear the gospel preached because the communion table is a picture of what we hear preached to us. James, uh, around closing his letter, he urges his readers this, Be patient, brethren, until the coming of our Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets early and late rains. You too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. The table that is before us has two pictures on it. I use Van Gogh pictures to illustrate things in Scripture. These pictures of the, of, of the bread and of the cup are picturing something for us. Jesus' body and blood poured out for us. The, the elements remind us of the table of the Passover, a time where God rescued his people Israel and, and, and brought them to a place of salvation. And so as we come to the table, we think of Passover. We think of our Passover lamb. We think of his blood shed for us. We think of his body broken for us. And it's a special time for us to also anticipate he's coming back. And when he comes back, we're not going to have communion anymore because we'll be face to face with him. Right? I take pictures with me when I travel, but when I get home, I don't need them anymore. My family's there. Right? If, if I'd been gone for a couple of weeks and my wife opens the door and I got my phone going, hang on, honey, I want to look at this picture of you. You say, you're crazy. Put down your phone. Give me a hug. I haven't seen you. We'll be face to face with him. This table is a table of picture of what he's done for us. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. And as the Lord leads, feel free to come to the table. Uh, take the elements. If you're new here, we just come forward and get them for ourselves. It's a time of reflection and sit down and drink and, and eat and join in song. It's a time of worship. It's time for us to come to him. Let's pray. Lord, we have discussed inevitable pain. We have read your inspired psalms. We have studied from your servant John, the incarnate person. We've looked at implications that need to be practiced. And Lord, we need your power to practice them. Lord, we continue now in worship. We have studied you as an act of worship. We've studied your word as an act of worship. And Lord, we confess that, that, that often there is a temptation to, to think that we have done something simply because we've studied. We haven't. We need to do business with you. And so we pray now that your spirit would move as we come to the table, minister in our hearts, sanctify us, do a work in us, create a clean heart in us, O oh God. As we join together with our brother leading us in song, I, I pray that the words of our worship 
Lord, would penetrate our hearts. Forgive us of the uh, hypocrisy and, and, and sin and darkness that is within. Set us free, O God. We cry out with the psalmist, How long, O Lord? We intercede for our loved ones who are mourning. And we come to you, Lord, trusting that you have a plan and you're working it out. Just like you waited four days to make a point, you have seen fit to wait for your return. And Lord, we can't wait. We can't wait. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Be honored in these songs as we offer them in our offering and, and the table now. In Jesus' name, amen.